I don't know if any of you are chess players. Any chess players here this morning? Just JJ? Um, you're familiar with chess, though. Well, you know, you're familiar with the pieces on the board. So if I was asking you the question, what's the most powerful piece on the chessboard, what would you say? Queen. queen. The queen. Why? Why is the queen the most powerful piece? Do you know? She can go anywhere. She can do anything. She's enabled in the board to do things that the other pieces on the board aren't enabled to do. If I was to ask you what the most uh, useful, useless or most expendable piece on the chessboard was, what would you say? The pawn. Uh, the pawn is the, the foot soldier. It's usually the first casualty in the chessboard. But in the game of chess, if you play it and you know it, there's, a, there's an amazing transformation that takes place on the chessboard when the pawn, as it sat here, makes its way all the way up the chessboard and gets to the, uh, basically the enemy's uh, line, back line. When it gets to that, that point, it can then change and be changed into a queen. And then, then that pawn has the ability to go anywhere on the board that it wants and do the things that the, only the queen can do. And when I was thinking about that as a, as a whole kind of concept, it, you know, it's so similar to what, what the gospel is because there's an amazing transformation takes place because we are just foot soldiers. We're just human beings. Who are we? But in this game of life, as it's called, when you become a new creation in Christ, there's an amazing transformation that takes place that you are uh, crowned, as it were, your royalty, because you now are entered into the royal family of God. And now you can do the things in the board that you were not able to do before because you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You can serve God. You cannot serve God unless the amazing transformation has taken place. You have no right to serve God. You have no ability to serve God. You cannot claim him as your father. You're not part of his family until the change, the transformation takes place. And so I was thinking about the chessboard and this amazing transformation in, in the gospel. And I was thinking about how I've seen that in my life. And, and you sitting here this morning can think back to the time that you stepped out of uh, obscurity, as it were, in the mass of, of, of sin, the sin-filled world where God reached down and he saved you by his grace and he put you in a new family. And all of a sudden you went from being a pawn to being a queen, as it were. Take that in the right way. And God changed you and transformed you. And, and I was thinking about the gospel power in and, and, and my life. But also then I was thinking about how I've seen others change as I've led people to the Lord and I, I've seen them go on for Christ. How you may have seen people and led them to the Lord and you've seen them go on in Christ. And as we were thinking, you know, it's Jubilee weekend and we're thinking about the coronation where the queen was crowned and, and all that sort of stuff. I was thinking about the crowns in Scripture and there are five crowns available in Scripture for the believer. Now, this is for believers only. One of them is the crown of rejoicing. And Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. And we're thinking about this concept, this whole concept of leading people to Christ and seeing people come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no sweeter thing than to see somebody you love come to the Lord Jesus Christ. No sweeter thing. And it's a miracle of saving grace. And, and here's the good news, folks. 
God is still in the miracle business of saving souls. He wants to save people. He is willing that none would perish. That's his words, not mine. God is not done. People may have turned their back and we may look at this country and we may even just be thinking about the Queen and you know, her personal faith and, the, and you know, what comes next because none of the ones that are coming next have any personal faith in the Lord. But God hasn't changed. God's still willing to see him. This amazing miracle where the palm becomes a queen, where there's a transformation, where you come from the, uh, being in the family of Satan to being in the family of God. God's still willing to do that. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, led countless people to the Lord. He led countless people to the Lord. And he delighted in it. It was his joy. It was his purpose. It was his mission to go and preach the gospel of grace. That's what we're learning about in Romans as we're going through Romans. And it's an amazing gospel, isn't it? For those that are doing the Wednesday night study, the impact of grace is amazing. It's unfathomable. The more you look at it, the more it amazes you. That God not only saves us, but he sets you apart and takes you, gives you a new nature, uh, makes you a new creation, and doesn't just say you're forgiven, away you go. He says you're forgiven, you're redeemed, you're bought with a price, come in. Now you're going to be one of my children. It's amazing grace. It's amazing grace, and Paul delighted in it. And he spent his life winning people to the Lord. He fought the good fight, which means it was a battle. And Paul had his battles. There's no doubt about it. Um, I'd love to do the the life of Paul sometime and and look at it. And I think probably we'll do that, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries. But Paul visited the church of Thessalonica. We're we're looking at Thessalonians this morning. And he visited that in a second missionary journey, preaching the gospel of grace. And he did this inside and outside the synagogue. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 and verse 2. Acts 17 verse 2 says this, And Paul, as his manner was, as his custom of life was, this is what he did. This is what he was about, and others seen it. That word manner, it it means a habitual lifestyle that others see. He was known for this. Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few so again, we see here Paul going about preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. And of course, you know, we, we see where the work of God's done. I've said this many times. I'll say it again. Where the work of God is done, the enemy work increases. You, that is fact. Fact. This is a war. A war. War. And churches that aren't facing opposition from the enemy, you have to wonder at times, are they even in the fight? That doesn't mean that every, every day is a battle in terms of the church. But if you don't see things trying to hinder your work at points, you have to wonder, are you doing the right work? If it's not a difficult work, then, then, then that doesn't mean that the Lord won't be with you. He won't bless you. He won't guide you. 
But, you know, doing children's work, reaching families in this, in this nation, this westernized, post-Christian, it was never a Christian nation, but in terms of a mentality, it's such a difficult mission field. You know, you do these clubs and, you know, there, there, there are places where, you know, the, the gospel is thriving and there's, you know, you'll, you'll fill the place with families. But England's a difficult field. It's a difficult field. Because the enemy's got a foothold in the battle here. But we've got to fight and we've got to keep fighting. And Paul was a fighter. He did his work. And, of course, you know, where the work happens, the opposition comes. But Paul fought on. He fought the good fight. And, of course, the church in Thessalonica thrived. So now we get to chapter uh, 2 of 1 Thessalonians where Paul is writing back to the church, to the believers. And he says this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, which is our key text this morning. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? So Paul writes back to the church, to the people that he had led to the Lord, and he talks about them as his crown of rejoicing. That word rejoicing can also be translated as boasting or exalting, you know, to have pride over your, your children. Caden, um, when we were in Spalding, he did his 11 plus, and he was in a little small school, a little, uh, only like 80 pupils in it, so the money only had like 20 or so uh, people that did, did, were in that age to do the 11 plus, and not a lot of them did it. But Caden did it, and he was the only one that, that passed. And, but he wasn't allowed to celebrate that in, in the school. You weren't allowed to mention it because we, we can't celebrate success because everyone's a winner and all that nonsense, which is just nonsense. So in school, he wasn't able to, 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 to have any, no celebration to say, well done, you know, you put the work in, you, you got a result. That's what happens. Put hard work in, this is what you get. No, not allowed to do that. But for us, he was our crown of rejoicing. We were so proud of him. So proud that he inherited his daddy's brains. <laughs> so proud that he, that he passed. He was a crown of rejoicing. So with Paul, those children, those, those believers in Thessalonica were his children that he'd lent to the Lord. They were his crown of rejoicing. You see, Paul's, Paul's whole mantra was to see people saved for the glory of God. And when he led people to the Lord, he rejoiced. They were his crown of rejoicing. And when we deal with these crowns in scriptures, these crowns are about what we uh, present to the Lord when we stand before the Lord and he uh, basically uh, asked us to give an account of what we have done with this amazing gift of grace. And, and, and to come empty-handed to the Lord is going to be heartbreaking. But there are crowns to be won that we can say and throw them at his feet and say, Lord, this was for you. This was for your glory. And one of these crowns is this crown of rejoicing. Some people call this the soul winner's crown. This is for people like Paul that have witnessed the gospel and have led people to the Lord. They haven't saved them. They haven't done anything. But they've been faithful with the message they have. And they have taken it to those that need it. And the Lord has done the work and saved that soul. And then that person becomes a crown of rejoicing for the one that led them to the Lord. Andrew Murray said this. There are two classes of Christians. Soul winners and backsliders. Now that's tough. That's a stinger. That's a stinger. And you may say, well, Andrew Murray lived in a little bit of a different time. 
And, you know, he, he was a great man of God, but, you know, not, not everybody's got the gift of evangelism. And that's true. That's true. That's true. But there is a, a strong point there that part of the Lord's work is the witnessing of the gospel. We're going to have a look at this a bit later on. And this is a command that's not just given to pastors, not just given to those that may have the gift of evangelism. You know, when we think about evangelism, we just immediately, if I say evangelism to you, first thing that's going to come to most of your minds is either going out and talking to people in the street or um, going around maybe handing out tracts or something, something like that, or maybe street preaching. But evangelism is just you sharing the good news in any way that you can. Sometimes that's just through your life, your actions. Sometimes that's through uh, treating people like Jesus would treat them. Sometimes it's, it, it can be creative in the things that you do and if you have hobbies that you, you like to do, like uh, the knitters and natters. It's evangelism. It just so happens that they get to knit and natter at the same time, but it's evangelism. We can all be part of this and we're going to see this this morning. So the challenge this morning, and I, I want to make this a challenge because I, I firmly believe this country has got to the place that it's got to because we as the church have been asleep. We've been asleep. We have fallen into where the devil wants to be us in a place of comfortability. I don't even know if that's the word, but you know what I mean. Where we're comfortable and we're okay. And, and things have got muddied in terms of our mission. And we're going to have a look at that this morning. So my question to you is, if the Lord was to come back this very day, would you have the crown of rejoicing to lay at his feet? Have you ever led somebody to the Lord? Because if you haven't, you're missing out in this crown. You're missing out in the glory that you can give the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I've said, as, as many in the church... Truly, I haven't led anybody to Christ. Now, this is a very difficult mission field. I, I will give you that. I will give you that. But th- as a church-wide problem, I'm not just talking about Milton. Don't feel like I'm just honing in on you. But as a church-wide problem, I think the problem is there are many in the church that will not have this crime. And if there were many more in the church that went about trying to uh, gain this and achieve this and devoted their life on this earth to, to earning this crown so they would have the delight in seeing others come to Christ, see that transformation. I don't think this country would be in the state that it's in. I really don't. We've fallen asleep. So what's the problem? There's clearly a problem. There's clearly a problem because I believe, and I hope you believe too, that God is unchangeable. Amen? The gospel hasn't changed. It's the power of God unto salvation. Has that changed? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So there's a problem in society. I get that. We're, they're drifting and, and, and Western ideology is drifting away to a very secular, uh, warped, woke mindset. It's just, you know, we live in a world where two plus two can be whatever you want it to be. It's no longer four. And that is a dangerous place. And it's a very hard mission field to witness to. But God hasn't changed. So there's a problem in the world, absolutely. But there's always been a problem in the world. The world has always been sin-filled. The world has always rejected God. There's always been a remnant of God's people trying to witness the good news. So them conditions, although you may say they're a bit more difficult now, are practically the same. But I tell you what has changed. It's something's changed within the church to allow us to get to the place 
where we are apathetic to the gospel mission and we're apathetic to the fact that lost sinners are going to hell. We live in an age where we want to scrub that out and not say that. So, what's the problem? Well, there's three issues, I think, that I want to talk about this morning uh, quickly. The first thing is, I think there's a lack of understanding. There's a lack of understanding within the church about the church. You could say it like this. There's a lack of ecclesiological understanding. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Because we have the instruction of the Savior, don't we? We should know this. I mean, this is, this is Christianity 101. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Let me read it to you just in case you don't know it or just in case you you've, uh, haven't heard it in a while. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. This is the instruction of the Savior. This is the Great Commission, where the Lord says, All power, all exousia is given unto me. All authority is given unto me. Therefore, go in my name. Teach all nations. Baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you to do. You can't teach them and baptize them and ask them to follow the Lord I've been doing that all week. Unless, unless you lead them to the Lord and the saving grace of the Lord changes them. It's all part of it. It's all part of it. You know, programs are good. Holiday Bible clubs are good. Uh, you know, the church right now says the community is good. But if it's not gospel-centered and gospel-focused with the purpose of teaching them that they are sinners that need to be saved, that they have no way of saving themselves, and it's only God by His grace that can change that situation and take them from being the pawn on the board to being a queen and giving them the authority to go and preach the gospel. It's only the gospel work that you need to be doing to then move them on. That's the instruction of the Savior. And it's given to the disciples, representative of the church. It's, it's not to um, just special people within the church. It's not just the pastors. Not just to those that are active in the church. Everybody should be active in the church. This is the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. He died that we can meet as a church. To call one another brothers and sisters in Christ is at the expense of the shed blood of the perfect Lamb of God. To come together to worship Him is at the expense of the shed blood of the perfect Lamb of God. It's the body of Christ. And we've been given instruction by the Savior. The problem then lies, I think, is oftentimes in the implementation of the strategy. We've got our instructions from the Savior, but when it comes to the implementation of the strategy, and I've talked about this before, we try and do things in our own strength all the time. And it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to do that. Because that comes natural to us. You know, Holiday Bible Club, it's so easy to, to get your mind off. The Lord needs to do this and to try and 
do this and do that and focus this and get this ready and, and run the boat, try and organize things. And you forget that the Savior is the one who you're doing this for. And if it's his work, he will empower you. And I've referenced this before, but turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. And, and on, I would underline this if you've got highlighters. It's good to get these, these passages underlined so that, that when you're skirting through, you can see them. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, and this is Paul uh, speaking. And, and I love this. This is the right balance of, of what it means to do God's work. Paul says this, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh mightily in me mightily. So Paul says that I'm laboring, I'm doing the work, but I'm doing it according to his working, his will, what he's wanting me to do, who is working in me mightily. So this concept, let go and let God, isn't accurate. We have to work according to God's will. That means we have to do our part, but we do it in God's strength. That's the supernatural mystery that goes on in the life of the believer. But often we're just tempted to do it all on our own. And then we get frustrated when it falls apart. And then we get frustrated when it doesn't work. But if it's what God wants us to do, then it doesn't matter really what we see happen because we are accountable to do what God wants us to do. That's what Paul's saying. Paul would have had his frustrations. He would have went and gone where God had led him and hit a brick wall. He was going to the synagogues and at times they weren't like Thessalonica um, they, or Berea when he goes there. At times he hit a brick wall and at other times the brick wall was broken up and thrown at him. But he was still doing what God wanted him to do. So I think as a church, when I think about what the problem is, and the reason that we struggle with soul winning and going out and preaching the gospel is, is we have a lack of understanding. Firstly, a lack of understanding and in the instruction of the Savior. That he's told us what to do. He's given us the authority and he said he'll be with us always. And we have a lack of understanding when it comes to the implementation of the strategy. We try things too much in our own strength and when they fail, we get discouraged. But we've got to do things God's way. So I think for a lot of people, there's a lack of understanding in, in, in the church. It's purpose, first and foremost. The church isn't for lost people. You know that. That may shock you this morning. That's not what the church is for. The gospel's for lost people. The gospel's for lost people. The church is for the saints, to edify the believers that we might go out and do the work of the gospel, the mission. So the lack of understanding in the church's purpose, also there's a lack of understanding in the church's power. We are the body of Christ. He will enable us and equip us to do this work if we get right about this work and we make sure that it's his work and not our work. So firstly, there's a lack of understanding. Secondly, I think there's a lack of urgency. I'll say that this morning. There's a lack of urgency in the church. You know, we, we've fallen asleep. If I was to say that there's a lack of ecclesiological uh, uh, understanding, I would say that there's a lack of eschatology catalogical urgency, what I mean by that. It's understanding that the time is short. Because when we think about the eminency of the Son, Scripture, I believe, firmly points us to the fact that the Lord could come back at any time. There is nothing that is needed to happen for the Lord to return. 
And because of that imminency, and imminency we, we think is sometimes we think of something that's coming soon, but imminency really means something that can happen at any time. It's always hanging over us. It could have happened in Paul's time. It could have happened uh, in the 3rd and 4th and 5th century. The Lord has tied because he is, he is uh, gracious. He's willing that none would perish. But he could come back at any time. And when we get that and really, really uh, comprehend that, that should give us a sense of urgency about the work, the purpose of the church. It should. But we, we fall into this place where we just, honestly, we just, me included, you just don't live like the Lord's going to return today. We don't. We fall into the trap that the world has, 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 has skillfully spun to take us away from that urgency of the hour, to make us think that, you know, plan ahead and just think about this life. The Lord will not be back. Don't worry about that. And we've fallen into it. So the eminency of the sun, our understanding of that has affected our, our urgency when it comes to our gospel witness. When you think about the eminency of sun, you've got to look at the indication of the signs. Now, we're not date setters. But the Lord has said there will be signs, there will be seasons that you can see that point to his return being ever nearer. And, and you know, I honestly, as a church, I, I like to think that we have, had, as a church, good, strong, prophetic Bible teaching. I like to think that um, as a pastor, I'm pretty clued up on this. That's why I'm involved in PWMI, to try and get this this message to a younger generation because I think it's been lost. But I look, and honestly I look, and I know I don't set dates and times or whatever, but the, I'm seeing the dots connect in a way now that 10 years ago they, weren't, they were heading that way, but they weren't where they were now. And, you know, if you come on Sunday nights, we're going through the book of Revelation, we'll look at some of the things that are spoke about are now happening right before our very eyes. Right before our very eyes. One example is, is the removal of currency. This digital uh, uh, identity that we're all getting where you, just, you can't go anywhere or do anything. And, and COVID has just pushed us on a little bit. I got a letter from the bank. I think I shared this not so long ago. They were reducing the, the hours because they said of, of their operating times. And they've said, COVID has changed the way that we use money. So we're reducing our hours. You know, cash is going because cash is untraceable. Cash is going. Book of Revelation tells us about this. The signs that things are aligning and the things that happen. And, and that shouldn't panic us, believer. If you've got a, a correct understanding of, of end times, it shouldn't panic you. It should promote you to a place where you're more fervent about sharing the gospel. And you should look at those events and not be petrified, but rejoice that the Lord is in control and he is doing everything he said that would happen is happening. And that should reinforce our belief in standing in the Lord, that he's in control. We've got to look, and and this world is, is quickly spinning into where it was all those years ago in the days of Noah when God judged the world before. We could see it before our very eyes. So there's a lack of understanding. I think that's one problem within the church. There's a lack of urgency. I think that's another problem within the church. And here's the final problem, and I think this is probably the most uh, prevalent problem. There's a lack of undertaking. There's a lack of undertaking. Because I can preach all day long about the purpose of the church, about the power of the church, about the gospel and the mission, the instructions from the Saviour. 
And I can talk about the urgency of the hour all day long till the, the cows come home. But it really rests and falls in each of us making our decision before the Lord. It's a lack of undertaking. What are we dealing with? Number one, we're dealing with the indifference of the saint. Many are just indifferent to this message that the Lord may return this very day. Many are indifferent to the fact that people are out there and although they look happy or although they're going about their business, today may they be their last day on earth and they may head to a lost eternity. People just aren't fussed about sharing the gospel. It's too difficult. It's too hard. Don't know how to do it. Again, it gets back to this us doing things instead of trusting the Lord. Many today within Christendom refuse to talk about hell. To speak about it. Oh no, that's, that's too Old Testament. Oh, that's too nasty. We, we, we. Listen, you cannot speak about heaven unless you're willing to speak about hell. If you want to share the Lord, you've got to share it all. Share it all. But many won't do it today. So we've got the indifference of the saints. And then we've got the impediments of the saints. I can't because. I'm not equipped. I'm not a good speaker. I can't do this. I don't have any time. Etc, etc, etc. Pastor David used to say this. I'm sure you remember it. And, and you know, I, I do as, as, as I get on in ministry. This is, I, I understand this is ever more true, true statement. I'm going to paraphrase him a little, so I'll try and get it right. But he says that an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And often for us, often for us, we make excuses why we can't be about the Lord's work. We do. But if we had our understanding of the church's power and purpose right, if we had the urgency of the hour kneeled down and upon our minds, would our undertaking not increase? Would we just say, do you know what? I can make some time to be about this work because it's the most important work. We've got to get our understanding, our urgency, and then we've got to do it. That's the simple truth of it. We've got to get boots to the ground. We've got to get boots to the ground. And I appreciate in churches, there are so many churches that have been held together by the seasoned saints. That's what I'm going to call you. The seasoned saints. But there needs to be a younger generation that steps up, gets in the battle and starts to take the gospel to the people out there. Not to be ashamed of it. We've let the world bring us to a place where we are ashamed to be called a Christian. Oh, I don't want to stand up in the room and say I'm a believer because the world hates that. They're going to mock me. They're going to... And, and we're straying. We can't take it. We can't take it. Imagine if our Lord said that. No, no, I can't take this. I can't take this mockery. I can't take this abuse. I can't take this beating. I'm out. Each and every one of us would stand here this morning a sinner lost without any hope. But the Lord took it so that we could be his children. So what are we prepared to do to take the gospel to the world? 
None of us will have to go out in this country and face being crucified. We may get laughed at. We may get mocked a little. But that's why I mock you in church, so that you're ready for being mocked out there. But it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. What are we willing to do? Let me read you this article. This is from a, uh, based on a sermon from a missionary called Dale Tarr. He served 14 years in West Africa. And his story points to uh, the price some people are willing to pay to sow the seed of the gospel in hard soil. We live in hard soil, a hard soil area. I lived in Spalding. It was hard water in Spalding. The England is hard soil, and we need the Lord to break up the fallow ground. But we need to go out there. There is a harvest. So he writes this. He says, I was always perplexed by Psalm 126 until I went to the Sahal, the fast stretch of savannah more than 4,000 miles wide just under the Sahara Desert. In the Sahal, all the moisture comes in a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. The ground cracks from dryness, and so do your hands and your feet. The winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and throw thousands, throw it thousands of feet into the air. And then comes slowly drifting across West Africa as fine grit. Gets inside your mouth, gets inside your watch and stops it. The year's food, of course, must be all grown in these four months. So people grow uh, sorghum or milo in small fields. October and November, these are beautiful months. The granaries are full, the harvest has come, people sing and dance, they eat two meals a day. The milo is ground between two stones, making flour and then a mush with the consistency of yesterday's cream of wheat is eaten. The meal lies heavy on their stomachs so they can sleep. December comes and the granaries start to recede. Many families omit the morning meal. Certainly by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes. The meal shrinks even more during March and the children succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. April, this is the month that haunts my memory. In it you hear babies crying in the twilight. Most of the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then inevitably it happens. A six or seven year old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy, daddy, we've got grain, he shouts. Son, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging on the wall. I reached up and put my hand down in there. Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it to mummy so she can make flour. And tonight our tummies can sleep. The father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that, he softly explains. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains and then we must use it. The rains finally arrive in May and when they do, the young boy watches as his father takes the sack from the wall and goes about doing the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his family, 
his desperately weakened family. He goes to the field with tears streaming down his face. He takes the precious seed and he throws it away and he scatters it in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything with it he wants. The act of sowing it hurts so much that he cries. But as African pastors say when they preach in Psalm 126, Brothers and sisters, this is God's law of the harvest. Don't expect to rejoice later on unless you've been willing to sow in tears. I want to ask you, how much would it cost you to sow in tears? I don't mean just giving God something from your abundance, but finding a way to say, I believe in the harvest and therefore I will give what makes no sense. The world will call me unreasonable to do this, but I must sow regardless in order that I may someday celebrate with songs of joy. If we want a crown of rejoicing, if we want the Lord to give us this crown that we can look back and say we have led people to the Lord, it means that we are going to have to sow in tears. We are going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to give all to the Lord. We're going to have to trust him when it seems like nothing's working. And we're going to have to be about his business. And if we do that, church, we can have a crown of rejoicing. To get to that place, here's what I want to say to you as we close this morning. Number one, we have to have a correct understanding of the church our purpose and our power. Number two, we have to have a correct sense of urgency. The Lord could return at any moment. Anytime I say that in the pulpit, as a child of God, you should believe that and live like that, that the Lord could come back now. And our time to sow is done. Which leads us then to the final point that we had, that there has to be an undertaking of God's people. It's not for me to do this alone. It's not for a few of us to do this alone. It's for the church to do it together. If we want people to be seen, we have to strive for a crown of rejoicing. To do that, we have to be about his work, his way, according to his strength. And only then, only then will things start to change out there. In here is sweet. It's God's place with God's people. But this is not the sweetest place. Heaven is the sweetest place for the saint. This is a place where we recharge to go about his business, to go about the battle, to be the pawn that becomes the queen and gets the crown of rejoicing for his glory.